0: Uh, Father, thank you for uh, just a reminder of your kindness towards us, your love that you have for us, the um, faithfulness, the, the love that you showed on Calvary to display our worth and our value to you, that you would give your life for us, Lord, we're grateful. Uh, Father, I pray that that would be our experience of you, uh, even as we hear from your word this morning, as we sing these songs that maybe we struggle um, at times to to really believe, I pray that you would just help us, help that to resonate in our hearts, to get deeper into our souls, that you, um, there's not a single thing in the world that you wouldn't move out of the way to express your love for us, and we know that um, because you were willing to lay down your very life to, to make sure that we could draw near and that you could finally be with your sons and your daughters. Um, so Father, I pray that that would sink deep um, in hearts and in lives that are just desperate to be reminded that you actually uh, see us, that you actually love us, um, that you haven't forgotten, uh, that you're not mad at us, but you're madly in love with us. I pray that those things would be on our hearts today, that you would, uh, by your Spirit, just move and soften and, uh, and do what only you can do. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good morning. My name's Colton. Uh, do I dismiss anyone? If you're supposed to be dismissed, you're dismissed. Um, my name's Colton. I am the, uh, the son-in-law of Larry Ray and Sherry Ray uh, because about 11 years ago, on August 6th, they let me marry her, uh, their daughter, which was a real gift. Um, so it's been 11 years. We've had a really good run. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, we have a, a six-year-old, about to be seven. His name's Teddy. Uh, they're not here with us today. She actually is teaching for me at uh, the church that I serve at out in Piperton. Um, so, uh, she's not here today with, with him, um, but anyways, grateful to be here. Uh, my worship leader is uh, Hannah Knoll, uh, who just led, and uh, just a real gift to, she's a really good friend of our families, and we, we love their family and stuff, so uh, when she was coming to lead, it, it kind of turned into this thing, it was like, well, I would love to come and preach with you and just do that, because we do that on a weekly basis, so let's do that here, so uh, anyways, it's a real gift. Uh, I'm going to mess with this mic, as Zach Smith told me to. Is that better? Okay, thanks. Um, anyways, I'm grateful to be able to, uh, to preach today. Um, I'm going to read the teaching text, uh, and then we'll, we'll get right into it. But this is uh, Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9. This is Moses writing and says, To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on, the, on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. I mentioned that I married Rainie, um 11 years ago. I remember the first time that I ever told her I loved her. Um, it was at the Backyard Burger on North Perkins. Because that's how fancy we are. Um, but I was 21, and we'd been dating kind of date I was we were dating in my opinion and I think to her she it was nice to be you know with me I guess anyways um, but I loved her, We've, two weeks we were together, and I've loved her for like two years. I, I was invited by Larry and Sherry to a dinner party at their house like two years before this. I, had been, I was dating another girl that I'd been with a couple of years, met Rainy, and then literally went home that night, called her on the phone. Amy Webb Smith knows this uh, because she was there watching my Facebook page change overnight. But as soon as I, as soon as I met Rainy, I went home immediately. I was like, hey, it's not gonna work, <laughs> sorry. Um, I met somebody else, she doesn't know that I exist, but one day she might. Um, and, like, that was it. Um, I broke up with that girl that night. I just, like, actually fallen in love with this, with this woman and with this girl that I was like, I don't know that she'll love me, but I will love her, and maybe that will help things shift and change in my, my way. So we'd been, at that point, she finally, two years in, like, I waited two years and pursued her, waited and pursued her, and um, finally she was like, yes, we can go on a date or whatever. And so I do what any guy does, and I take her to the BYB lounge. And, <laughs> That's where we go, right there off North Perkins, because uh, that's how much money we had. And um, So we're, we're leaving, and she's getting in her car, and I remember she had this red Toyota Yaris, and I walked up to her window, and uh, I was going to shoot my shot. I was just going to go for it, and I was like, Rain, I'm just, I loved this so much, and honestly, I, I love you, and I've loved you for like two years, and she, was, she looked at me and this, this whole thing, and I was proud of myself for just saying it, you know, just actually doing that. And then she looked at me and she was like, oh, Colton, thanks. <laughs> and then she drove away, like real fast. And I was like looking around to make sure nobody was watching that happen. <laughs> it took a couple of more months before she actually would admit that she loved me. Um, and even now, you know, it's challenging to get her to say it <laughs> um, But you know, I mean, during that time of waiting, when I said I loved you, and then I'm waiting for her to actually say that back, one of the things that I never thought to do, one of the things I never thought to do, and I don't think any of you have ever tried to do this ever, I never thought to command her to love me. Like, I love you and you will love me too. Like, I've just, I don't think anybody's ever tried that, except the Lord right here, that is actively what he's doing. He is commanding affection. He's commanding love. He's like the only one in history that's ever actually been like, I love you, and you need to love me, and I'm, commanding, I'm demanding it of you. I demand you to love me. And so it's important for us to understand this idea because God is actually demanding and commanding our love. It's important for us. Because I think many times, the way that we think about God is that He commands our obedience. He commands our duty, he commands like our honor and our fear. We, we can commonly get into our minds that like, what he actually wants for us is realistically just for us to be obedient, to follow the rules and to do the things that he says. And yet here, he's actually expressing something very different. He uses the word love. He doesn't use the word command or duty or honor or fear. Those are other Hebrew words. He wants you to understand, like, I, I love you and I'm commanding you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. David Gizek, in his commentary, says this about this passage he says what God wants most from us and I have this on the screen yeah there we go what God wants most from us is our love we often think that God demands a hundred other things from us our money our time our effort our will our submission and so forth but what God really wants is our love when we really love the Lord with all of our heart soul and mind then everything else is freely given to the Lord but if we give the Lord all the rest, money, time, effort, will, and so forth, without giving him our love, it is all wasted, and perhaps all is lost. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. This is a New Testament thing that, that is picked up by Jesus, actually at the very end of the Bible when you read in Revelation 2. Jesus is, is writing to. Or he's giving his revelation to John, and John is writing to the churches. And one of the churches he writes to is the church in Ephesus. In Revelation 2, this is what Jesus says to write. He says, John, write this to the church in Ephesus. He says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, "Write, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary yet. I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. And one of the things I want you to notice is look at their obedience. Like Jesus actually commends their, their obedience a little bit. Like He says, I know your hard work, your perseverance, your toleration of, you don't tolerate wicked people. You have strong doctrine. You're enduring hardships for my name. You've not grown weary. This is a really, 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 if you're just looking at strong churches throughout history, this is a very, very strong church. A lot of things that they're doing right. And you would think that Jesus would be proud of them and say, great job, really good. That's really good stuff, but he doesn't. He doesn't commend them. For their obedience he actually goes to me like look you you're being you're, you're doing a lot of nice things but you don't love me like you used to there used to be this affection that you had for me and again i think we have this idea that jesus should have said like hey good for you like, you guys are being obedient even though you don't love me. Like, that's amazing. Like, good. Like, like, a, like a spouse or a, a marriage that stays together for the kids. Like, y'all don't even love each other anymore, but look how what you're doing, all this stuff. Or a boss that you hate, but you still do the work. Like, you hate that boss, but you're still doing your work and you're getting your deadlines down and all the rest. This is not who Jesus is. He's not a tyrant. He's not our boss. He's actually someone who's madly in love with us. And he's like, look, I don't actually want your obedience without your affection. You're doing a lot of the right things, but I want your heart. And he says this throughout the scriptures like, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Like sacrifices and burnt offerings I do not require, but a contrite heart. I actually want your affection. I want your love. I want you to understand that I'm not like everybody else who's just like, just obey and move forward without ever actually having affection for me. He's like, I genuinely, I care about your love. I want you to actually love me. And it breaks his heart and it breaks his heart for us because it's like, you just don't love me like you used to. And so I think for Christians, I think for people who are followers of Jesus, and and honestly, I think for those who are trying to figure out where they are in all of this, I think it's deeply important for us to understand that this is actually what he wants, our heart, our love, our affection. Because again, if we get it locked into our minds that he's really just after our money or he's really just after our obedience or I just need to not look at porn today or I need to make sure that I stay faithful to my wife today or I need to make sure that I do this, like if that's all we think of him, then we chalk him up basically to a rule and we treat him and we have a relationship with him the same way that we have with the speed limit. It's like I don't really, I'm not trying to get close to the speed limit, I'm not trying to be friends with the speed limit, it's just a rule that imposes on me and there's really no relationship there. And that's not what he wants. He actually wants something that's really, really affectionate. He didn't give his life. That song, the, the reckless love that we just sung, he didn't do, express to us reckless love and, and, and blessing and, and seek to forgive us of all of our sins and do all that stuff so that we kind of look at him the way that we look at our boss, who's kind of a jerk, but we have to obey because we need a paycheck. He just wants something better than that. And he wants something better for that for you as well. And so for us, I think as Christians, we need to constantly practice, because this, the Ephesian Church had to do this in the, foot of the Lord commands of us, to practice stirring our affections for Him, to actually stir up our love and our feelings and our affection for Him. And I want to ex- explain that real fast because I don't think religion should be touchy-feely all the time. I do think that it should, it should mess with our feelings and it should deal with every part of us, but it shouldn't just be like, "I just feel God today, and therefore He's real." I don't think it should be based on that. But I do think that there's supposed to be a stirring of our affections and a stirring of our love for him. And I do think that that's something that we can actively, actively press into so that we experience those things. And so I do think that we should, we should do that. Now, again, I don't think it's just a feeling. So a couple of weeks ago, I went uh, to this conference and one of the things we had to do was to write 25 things that we love about our, our spouse. And so Rainey was there with me and I'd, I wrote 25. She wrote 40, but nobody's really keeping count. Um, but uh, I wrote 25 things that I love about her, things that stirred my affections for her because that's what we were doing. And um, what I noticed as soon as it was done is we were kind of talking about it and debriefing with one another. I was like, there's not a single one of these, actually there was only one, but 24 out of 25 of these things that, that make that, that I love in you, these things that I love in you, I never could have been able to have said those things two weeks into our relationship at the BYB lounge. I never would have been able to say, 24 of these things like there was only one that was was true at the beginning of our relationship That's still true today. And it was you make me laugh I knew that about her two weeks into our dating relationship But all of the other ones I had to learn over time and so all 25 of these stirred my affections for her But only one actually stirred my affection for her from beginning to end these other ones were things that I learned about her through periods of time through life together and that and that type of thing My feelings for her didn't change in terms of my affection for her, but why I felt that affection did change dramatically. And the one that stood out to me the most was like, you're always on my team. Like we don't fight against each other, we fight for each other and that kind of thing. Like I wouldn't have known that two weeks in. Like that was something I had to learn through 14 years of us actually being together and 11 years being married. And I think that's the idea here that Jesus is pressing into. He's like, look, when you first entered into a relationship with me as a child or as a student, or as a young adult, or wherever you were. I'm not saying that that needs to be the feeling you constantly carry with you. But your affection for me might change, but it shouldn't go away completely. It might be like the first, the first time that I experienced affection for Jesus was because of this thing, and how he saved me in this particular way, and I know the way that I felt as a child, or I know the way I felt as a teenager. And that's one thing. I and mean, he's not saying carry that with you on into adulthood. He's saying, but the affection shouldn't ultimately go away. It should just shift and change. It should ultimately deepen so that you have something still there, and that's what he's after. It's like, you don't have to feel for me the exact same way, but I do want your love, I do want your affection. And so I think we need to practice, again, this idea of pressing into and stirring our affections for Jesus. And so I want to give you two reasons why I think we need to do that, not just because he asks us to, but two reasons why that we see from this passage. And the first is, we need to practice stirring our affection for Jesus, our love for Jesus, because we pass on what we love. We pass on what we love. Verses 6 through 9, it says this, It says talk about him when you walk, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, in your home, all these different things, write them on the doorpost of your house, do all this stuff. He's like, you just constantly do that. And it can sound like a lot of effort and it can sound like a lot of work, but honestly, if you actually love him, if there's affection and love that you have for him, that comes naturally. This idea of talking about the things that we love, we actually can't stop talking about the things that we love. We do it so much that some people don't want to hang out with us anymore or go to lunch with us anymore because all we talk about is the golf game that we had or the things that we love and all those different things we can't help but talk about what we love. We talk about, God when we talk about God in this way, when we talk about him in a way that like, we actually have affection for him, it becomes something that just naturally flows from us. But if we don't have that affection, if we don't have that love, we ultimately end up talking about him, and we might do it, but we're doing it out of obligation. We do it because we have to. He told us to, and so I gotta share my faith. He told me to, and therefore I gotta do this with my kids. He told me to, and therefore I have to pray, and all of those things, it becomes obligation, it becomes duty. We actually end up talking about him the way that some of you may have had the sex talk with your kids. Like, nobody really wants to do that. You don't want to have that conversation. Nobody wants to be here. It's awkward the entire time. And you're just ready to say enough so that you can leave and push it off and go like, that's it's an obligation, I have to, and now I'm just ready to be done with it. Now I'm done. And if that's the way that we talk about him, it's like, look, I know I have to because I'm supposed to then what we end up passing on is like, he's actually not that worthy of talking about. He's not that worthy of praise. He's actually someone to be talked about because it's awkward and moving on and that, and that kind of thing. It's like, that's not what he's after. But if there's affection, if there's true love for him, it's like we wouldn't be able to stop actually bringing him up. He would come naturally into our conversations. He would come naturally around the dinner table. He would always be somewhere in our minds because he's something that we love and it's something that we constantly think about. And we pass those things on. If you love him, it will be a delight to talk about him. The English poet William Wordsworth says this. He says, what we have loved, others will love, and we teach them how. What we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how. And Donald Miller, if you're familiar with his book, Blue Like Jazz, he, in his, I think it's the preface or the introduction of his book, but he talks about this idea that he's like, I never liked jazz music. I never resolved, so I never liked jazz music. And then he was walking down the streets of Portland one day, and he saw a man playing jazz music. And he said, I watched him for 10 minutes and the man never opened his eyes. Like the whole time he was playing, I watched him for 10 minutes, never opened his eyes. And he goes, after that, I, I love jazz music. And he says, it's really interesting thing. He says, sometimes you have to watch someone love something before you can love it yourself. And I think that's the idea here. That what God is asking, them, I want you to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength so that what you pass on, not only to your children, but to your neighbors and to the surrounding world and your coworkers and the people that see you, What I want you to pass on is not a duty obligation of like, I have to because he will squash me or punish me if he doesn't. I want you to pass on something that's actually like, he's the best thing that I've got going. He's the most loving person in my life. He's the one that I've experienced the most freedom with. I want you to pass on something that's beautiful and not something that's just like, I don't know, I'm kind of enslaved to it. I have to do it. And so he's like, that's what I want you to pass on. And If we're not careful, we won't pass on the joys of heaven and the joys of knowing Jesus. We'll we'll pass on is a a fear of hell. The only reason I do this is because I'm trying to avoid punishment. I'm trying to avoid hell. If we pass it on to our children or to the outside watching world or something like that, it's just like there's no beauty in there that that people aren't going to look at Jesus and go, wow, what the majesty, the glory, they won't do that. They'll go, the only reason that any of us are doing this is because we're trying to avoid some punishment. And the beauty of what we actually believe as Christians is like the punishment was all given on, on the cross on Jesus. And so we don't have to fear that anymore. And so what we're supposed to walk in is this confidence that like, even though I still struggle with sin, I'm free from the punishment because Jesus took it. And so I'm walking in this, this constant love relationship where it's like, I should deserve something worse, but he never gives me that because he took it on himself. And supposed to constantly set us up as someone that lives outside of the cultural world because the culture says, hey, when you do good, you get good. When you do bad, you get bad. And if we live like that as Christians, then ultimately what we're showing to them is just the, the same religion as the Hindus or the Buddhists and all the rest. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. And the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of what it, what it means to know Jesus is that something actually has shifted and changed. He has taken our punishment. And so now that what we receive from him is nothing that we deserve, but it's nothing but goodness and glory and mercy, as as, uh, she was talking about earlier. And so I think that's something that we need to pass on. When we love him, we pass on the things that we love. Second reason we need to stir our affections for Jesus is so that our obedience isn't a burden. So that our obedience to him isn't a burden. He does want our obedience and so it's not just like he wants our love and we don't have to obey. He, he genuinely does. I'm not a heretic. He actually wants us to obey uh, the Bible. He wants us to obey him. That is something that he actually says. And even in commanding us to love him, what he's ultimately calling us to is be obedient to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Um, but when we love him, ultimately the obedience that we share towards him, that we, that we provide for him, isn't a burden to us. And so John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you know, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And most people, when they hear that, when they think, if, if, if you love me, then you'll obey my commands. Most of us, what we think is like, the way that I'll show that I love you is by being obedient to you. So if I'm obedient to you, that proves that I love you. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you love me, obedience will just naturally follow. It will just be something that you do because obedience flows to what we love easily. This is why some of us get into debt because obedience with giving our money away to things that we can't afford flows really easy to the things that we love. This is why we get into to some of those things. My son, the other day, we went to Disney World, and he doesn't love getting up early uh, at all, um, but when I said, hey, we have to get up at 5 30 in the morning because we got to get in the park because there's eight billion people here trying to get in the line, and we're going to be one of the first ones in, and uh, I, we didn't have to wake him up. He woke up on his own at 5.30 in the morning. The kid doesn't want to wake up at 5.30. He woke up on his own. You know why? Because obedience flows naturally to the things that we love. If any chance to get to see that mouse, let's get in there. However early we have to do, I'll wake you up. Let's set 12 alarms. Let's make sure we're in. Obedience flows easily to the things that we love. And Jesus just understands that. He's like, look, if you love me, if you actually experience an affection for me, yes, I'm calling you to obedience, but it's not this drudgery that I want you to walk into. I want you to actually display the beauty of what it means to actually be in a relationship with me. And if you love me, you'll just naturally obey because obedience follows easily after the things that we love. This is why Augustine says, love God and live as you please. Love God and then live as you please. The freedom of that that saying, love God and live as you please. He's not saying you just do you and the cultural rhythms of our time, just do whatever you want to do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying like, look, if, if this is what takes shape in your heart, if you have this love and this stirred affection for God, you can ultimately just have the freedom to live because you will choose to live in the way that you're supposed to. Spurgeon says this too. He says, he who loves God has no chains about him. He may live as he likes, for he likes to live as he ought. This is what, what we're called to. It's like, I want you to love me so that you don't have to sit there and like count the commands in you and you have to constantly wake up in the morning and live by this thing. This is not what I've called you to this is the way that when people choose to live this way this does not display a beauty of what it means to follow jesus there's nothing beautiful about that everybody does this. if you have any kind of regimen that you follow for your your meals or your workouts or for your schedule or something like that it's dictated by the calendar or something else that you're doing if you do that kind of stuff that is a very disciplined way of living and i think there's time for that and that's something that we should build into our lives but jesus is actually saying i came to set you free I want you to experience freedom in following me. I want you to experience more freedom that you experience anywhere else. And it's not out there. It's actually with me. And so if, when, you, when you choose to love me, what's stirred in you is a, is a desire to actually follow me and follow after me and to be obedient. And you won't find it as something like, man, he's just so difficult to please. You'll constantly live and go, I am pleasing to him. I don't know why I'm pleasing to him, but I'm pleasing to him. And even when I fail, he's pleased with me and he delights in me. Even when I I screw up and I mess up, he still loves me as much as he did even before I even knew about him. And so the idea consistently is like, I want you to stir your affection for me so that obedience just becomes this thing that isn't binding you, that's setting you in this space where you feel like you're enslaved to something. but Rather, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free so that you're able to experience that. I read the other day about these uh, Australian cattle farmers It was in this weird book um, that's called Eternity Is Now. But anyway, it wasn't really about Australian cattle farmers, although I did find this really interesting. But um, he says there's two different but effective ways of keeping Australian cattle on the ranch. One way, it sounds pretty normal, you just build fences. Build fences around the cattle on the ranch and then you heavily guard them and that kind of stuff and just make sure they stay in there. That's one effective way of keeping the cattle on the ranch. He said that there's also this, really, this, this other very freeing, beautiful way that Australian cattle farmers keep their cattle on the ranch. And what they do is they go to the center of their land and they dig a well and they allow water to come up from the well and this becomes the life source for all the cattle on the ranch. He goes, and so they're free to roam almost as far as they want to. They're free to do whatever they want. There's no, there's no you know, fences or people guarding them or anything like that. There's nothing like that. Tons of freedom. But the reason they never leave is because they recognize like, the source of my life exists right here. And so I never want to stray too far because this is where I experience the fullness of life that I'm actually offered. And so why would I ever go anywhere else and try and pursue something when the source of life is right here? And I think if you think about the two different ways that people follow Jesus, one is like just religion. Like I'm boxed in to these things and I have to make sure I do this stuff. And it it drains you, it wears you down, and it makes you feel like you show up to church and you feel like you didn't stay inside your box well enough this week. And you show up to church and you sing songs that's difficult for you to sing because you're like, I don't know that he actually loves me like that because I haven't lived, I haven't stayed inside the proper boundaries that I was supposed to stay in this week. And then we have other, other people who struggle just as much or whatever, but they just understand that, like, I know that this is where my life is. This is everything that I have, and the boundaries that Jesus has created for me are strong, but I just, I just find my center here. And I know that, that when I mess up, that my sin is covered, and so my life is found here. My, my, my joy and my freedom, my guilt is actually taken away here. My shame is taken away here. And I think if we look at those two things, what Jesus is actually calling us to in loving him is, like, I do want you to obey. I just want you to obey from a space of knowing that, like, this is, I love you so much, and I want you to obey from this place because it just flows naturally to that. That's the type of relationship that he has for us. That's the one that he wants for us. So, we need to stir our affections. A couple of re- ways to do that. I'm going to give you three. Um, stir your affections. Uh, how do we stir our affections for God? The first is we need to find things, find joyous things that ultimately stir your affection for him, that actually stir your affection for Jesus. I'll share a few of mine. Um, If I ever go to dinner, like we actually did this last night, um, with good friends, good food, good drinks, that to me, me because of, of how the Bible is written and it begins with a wedding of Adam and Eve and it ends with a wedding feast of the Lamb at the end and then you see all these different celebrations where people are eating together and God's like, I did amazing work in your life, here's how I want you to remember it. Throw a feast, throw a party, have great drinks, Fatty brisket, really strong wine, make sure you get the best stuff. Like that's how I want you to remember everything that God is, that I've done in your life. And so when I'm with really good friends, eating really good food, drinking really good drinks, it reminds me of like this is a portion of the kingdom of God. This is what he's actually like. And so when I'm experiencing joy and enrichment from that, where my friends are encouraging me and then so on and so forth, and we're just enjoying that time. It's a space where I'm sitting there, I'm going like, this is what it will be like one day for all time in, in a very full picture eventually, but like, this is a small portion of what this will actually feel like. like the, 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 just the riches that I feel from this conversation and from this food and from, from the drinks, like this is what it's going to be like. And so I get to experience just an affection for Jesus, not only for good friends, but for good food and good drinks as well. Uh, we also do this thing, uh, Hannah knows about this because we, we actually are one of these for Hannah. It was her birthday a couple weeks ago. Um, but we do this thing called uh, the birthday activity. And uh, some of you may have done this. Larry hates it um, because we, we were forced to talk about him and he doesn't want anybody to talk about him. Um, but we go around the room and we basically, we ask the, the birthday person two questions. And it's like, what did you learn last year to this year? What do you hope to learn next year, uh, this year to next year? And so the person has to answer those. And then everybody around the table has to go around and answer the question, what is one quality you love about the person whose birthday it is. One quality you love. Uh, It has to be a quality. It can't be like, your shirt looks nice, like not that. Like an actual quality, a deep, resounding thing that's from their character. What is a character quality that you love? And every time we do this, um, it's just, it becomes pretty emotional because normally we don't do it with strangers, although that would be fine too, but, We're doing it really good friends, and we're speaking life into them in a way that's encouraging to them. And many times, some of the things that the people say to them are things that they're uh, already a little insecure about and wondering if that's actually true in their lives. And when somebody else calls it out of them and says, like, hey, this is a beautiful thing that I see in your life, it's just this really, really sweet time, and it's where you actually see the gospel. Like, this is this is unearned kindness. Like, you didn't do much to keep yourself alive this year. You had no part in your birth however many years ago. We're just giving you undeserved, kind, encouraging words to you. And just to see it actually piece people back together and to build them up and to encourage them and to, to allow them to actually move forward in their lives. It's one of the things that we do and it's really, really beautiful. And it, again, it's one of those things that like, I think you see Jesus do this with Peter and he says, I'm gonna call you a rock. And he's like, I am anything but that. Like he's like, yeah, but that's what I'm gonna call you. And he calls out destiny out of him. He calls out something in him that he sees that Peter himself isn't seeing. And I think in so many ways, we have the opportunity to do that when, we are, when we're around other people. And so when we practice this at dinner with people, it's one of those things, like, it just stirs, it stirs my affection for Jesus. When I, when people do that for me, and I'm encouraged by this, I'm like, this is how he talks to me. This is what he thinks of me. Jesus thinks of me this way. If he rejoices over me with singing, if he's constantly in this presence's fullness of joy, when I'm experiencing that, I'm ultimately experiencing a piece of his presence. And so it stirs my affection for him. Another one is uh, talking to Rainey about theology. I forget, that she's brilliant, uh, and I'm a redneck. Um, she, she, like... Could have graduated in three and a half years from Wheaton, and then the same could have graduated earlier with their masters and all this stuff. Just brilliant. But you know, we're married, and so our primary conversation is about like schedules and t-ball and bathroom stuff, uh, and you know, just other things with our child and who's going to do the laundry or the dishes or such what we're eating for dinner and stuff. And so when your conversations become very practical in that way, you kind of forget like, oh yeah, you're brilliant. And so she's teaching for me today at the church out there because she has this course that she teaches on and we were talking about it and stuff. And I was like, you're, like it, it is it is evidence of God's goodness in my life that you ever chose me. Like, I don't know how this ever worked because I'm a moron compared to the way that you're able to speak about some of these things. And so um, again, just any anytime that God has broken in, to my life. It stirs my affection just to remember that. Um, whenever I hear my son, he's six, whenever I hear him sing, some of y'all know this for three years, he wasn't able to talk at all, um, and it was really hard for us walking through trying to learn sign language and all of those different things, and so now when that when that broke free and the Lord did a work in his life where he was able to speak, and now not only speak, but he sings, um, it's just something that stirs my affection for him, and people would say to me like, oh one day you'll, you'll not want him to talk, like one day you're gonna wind up in the space where you're like, yeah, you're praying for him to talk, but one day you're going to wish that he didn't. And I'm like, that's foolish. I will never feel that way. I will never ever, and I don't ever feel that way. I mean, even when he's being really disobedient uh, through his words, uh, I remember that the Lord saw me and answered a prayer that I, I asked, Lord, would you please allow him to talk? But every time I hear him talk or sing, it's just evidence of like, God, you do see me. You do answer prayer. You still do the impossible things that you did in the past. Like you still do that stuff. And it stirs my affection for him. And I think we need to find stuff like that for us. One of the things that he says to the church in Ephesus, he said, do the things you did before. Like Figure out whatever it was that you felt affection for Jesus. Go back to those things and do those things. Restir, rekindle that fire, redo those things. And then we need to find what steals our affection. Figure out what steals your affection. If being around good, fun people uh, is, brings affection to Jesus in my life, being around really insecure, mean people steals affection in my life. So y'all need to figure out that as well. Figure out what steals your affection, busyness steals mine. Being on social media and reading all the comments that people have about every political or everything that they're a, a, a scholar in and they just learned about it five seconds ago. Like watching and reading some of those things is the most detrimental thing to my joy ever. It makes me think that like, and it's Christians, like people who would claim to like, we should love our enemy. And I'm like, cool, what are you doing here then? Because this is really confusing. Um, we should trust you know, in the Lord above all things, great you seem to be placing a lot of trust in the government. Like, it's very, very confusing for me. And so getting off social media was a real joy tilt in my life. But it was stealing it to watch some of these things take place. Hiding my sin, denying the good news of the gospel that Jesus still loves me. I have to hide it and feel like I have to hide it because if, I, if it comes out, then somehow God will love me less. People will love me less. And so staying in that and hiding in it, it just steals that from me. So you gotta figure out for you, what steals your affection for Jesus? What, what gets you to this point where you're like, I don't feel close to him anymore. I don't feel any kind of joy for him anymore. Many times it's just what you think about him. You think he's mad at you, and therefore it winds up, you wind up in this place where you feel like, I don't feel close to him anymore. He, he's disappointed in me all the time. I can't ever please him. And anybody you feel that way about, you never feel affection for that person. You might feel fear for that person, but not affection. And then third, uh, remember the good news of Jesus. I love that last song that we sung, his faithfulness and his reckless love. Remember the good news of Jesus. John says, you love because he first loved you. The reason we love is because he first loved you. Again, I think some of the times we hear that verse and we think, I am obligated to love you because you first loved me. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying, you you experience any kind of affection for him because he has chosen to love you. And so when you focus on the fact that he has loved you first, it restirs your affection for him. Not, he loved you and therefore now you're obligated to try and love him. It's not like that. He's not seeking to obligate you to anything. He's just trying to give you so many things that he actually leads you in a a healthy space in in a good way because of what he's done for you. He wants you to follow from love, not for love. He wants you to follow from blessing, not for blessing. He wants you to actually live in that way. And so we do love because he first loved us. And as we dwell on that, and we think about the reckless love of God, and then we think about our week, and it's like that, that reckless love still engages my heart, even though I know where I've been this week, I know where I've struggled this week, I know all the different things. My sin is ever before me. And still reminding ourselves that like, oh yeah, but his, his love is, is still true. While I was a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. All of that stuff is still real. Last quote, Greg Boyd says this, and I love this in his book, Present Perfect. He says this about Jesus. He says, despite our sin, despite our sin, our creator thinks that we are worth experiencing a hellish death for. In fact, it was for the joy of spending eternity with us that Jesus endured the cross. In other words, Calvary reveals our unsurpassable worth and significance. And at the core of our being, this is what we long for. I think if at the core of our being, what we long for is to just be reminded that we're deeply loved. One of the things that ultimately leads us in that way is to restir our affections for him. And so he wants that so that we ultimately pass that on so that the obedience that we're called to isn't something that is a bore to us or something that we're we're sitting there thinking, if I don't do this, then he's displeased with me or anything like that. But rather, it is a joy for us to experience those things. If that's the call, then my encouragement to you is to figure out what is it? What joyous thing could you give your life? Not a pleasurable thing all the time because those can lead into sin, even though pleasure comes from God. But what is the, this, this, where do you experience joy and press into that so that you're reminded of like, if every good gift, and I'm talking about this earlier, if every good gift comes from above, then every time you experience that as a, a small treasure that He's going like, hey, I'm, I still see you. I'm still very much involved in your life. I still very much want to bless you. I'm a a God who wants to give good good gifts to his sons and to his daughters. This is constantly who I am. And so when you experience those things, my encouragement too is just remember, this has only come from him so that it stirs your affection. And if there are other things that are stealing your affection for him, get rid of that stuff if you can. I'm not saying go quit your job, although if you're too busy to love your family and it's stealing your affection for, for Jesus, your family, and all the rest, then I would consider doing just about anything um, to make sure that your affections for Jesus are stirred and so that you're actually able to live into the life that he has for you, a fullness of life that he promises to give you and not one that's actually sucking life from you. So my encouragement to you is to do that, to try and figure out, to, to do whatever the Lord is saying here, like, love me, I care about that. And if you're just following me, if you're just being obedient to me, but you have zero affection for me, I think you would say, like, just quit doing that. Stop doing those things and actually try and stir your affections for me and we'll work on those things later. Because I think he says that in the Old Testament. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your, the things you're doing with your hands and the way you're following me with your feet but your heart isn't from me. I don't want any of that. I want you to figure out how to get back to this fact that you love me. I loved you and you can love me too. And when you do, you experience the life that I actually have for you. And so wherever that is for you, I encourage you, seek to build your affection for Jesus. Let me pray and you guys can come up. Uh, Father, thank you um, for your word. Thank you that you have set this um, and what you say is the eternal thing, this this, this word that won't pass away, that you care for our affection, you care for our love. Father, I pray for um, my heart and the hearts of of those in this room. Lord, if there um, is just a vision of you or a picture of you in our minds that what you care about the most, is really just that we just follow, regardless of how we feel. God, I pray that you would just tear that down. Lord, for those that are struggling to believe that, um, that you love them deeply, Lord, I pray that you would set that in their hearts, and in their minds. Would you remind them, regardless of where they've been this week, where they've struggled, how far they feel from you, how far they've fallen I just pray that you would just remind them that it is your love and your kindness that leads to repentance, that that is what you're drawing them with. and Anything else that they're hearing is something from the enemy, trying to keep you at odds with them, to keep you at a distance. So Father, I pray that you would break through in their hearts and their minds. Lord, would you make this church and the church as a whole just a group of people that have real affection for you, that display just the beauty of what it means to know you personally, because you're not just a set of rules, but a person who wants to be loved, so that when we follow you, we follow you out of that. Would you do that in our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen.
1: Thank you, sir. We're going to take a moment. remind ourselves and one another of the greatest evidence that God really does love us and that is that he sent his son to be a sacrifice for your sin and for my sin Paul says in Romans if you doubt that God loves you just Consider the fact that would someone give his only son for someone else? Would someone do that? How then can you doubt that God really loves you? Just like you are. Just like you are. He loves you. He really loves you. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. We're going to eat. We're going to drink the symbols that represent his body and blood that which He sacrificed so that we could experience forgiveness and adoption. But I want to invite you before you come up and get this and eat it and drink it and remember and give thanks before you do that why don't you just take a moment and stay in your seat whether it's 15 seconds or 5 minutes just sit in your seat for just a minute and uh, reflect on what Jesus told the church at Ephesus, you are living lives that are full of so many good, important things. Very impressive how many good things you're doing. But you have left the intimacy of your first love. I'm no longer your passion. I'm no longer that which you get up in the morning thinking about. That which is on your mind throughout the day. That which drives your motivations as well as your behavior. That which you go to bed at night thinking about. I'm no longer, I no longer hold that place. And I miss, you have that place in my life. I'd like to have that place once again in your life. So just let's take a moment before we come up and go through the the rhythm of eating and drinking and remembering and giving thanks. And let's think about what are those things that have maybe distracted us, pulled our affection, our passion away from Jesus What are those things? And what should we do about it? And then when you're ready, you come and eat and drink and remember and give thanks.